It's good to see you this morning. Glad that you're here. Had a few people this week send me notes that they were traveling for fall break this weekend and they'd be listening online. So if you're listening online today, good to have you too. And when we start this morning, we are going to, I said we switched it up, we're going to do something else a little bit different. You know, every week we're coming in here studying the Bible in what I hope is a really deliberate way, uh, focused on God with, the God, with God at the center of what we're doing. But I wanted you to know that our children, when they're out in children's church, are doing the exact same thing that part of their lesson every week, Miss Teresa is asking them the question, what's this teach you about God? And a few weeks ago, she had put up uh, just like a wall of paper and let them come in and draw pictures. They'd been in the, the book of Jonah for a few weeks, the story of Jonah. Draw pictures about what they've been learning about God and, the, and write answers about that. And I just wanted you to see this morning what God has been teaching our kids about him. And then also, I know this always happens to me with my kids, and I think it's going to happen even in these first few minutes, not just what God's been teaching our kids, but how when we're teaching our kids to focus on God, how he uses them to teach us who he is. And so we're going to start with them this morning, some truths about God, just up here on the screen. And this is what she, God is, and they were filling it in, and I think she and some of the other adults had written the creator, the beginning, the middle, and the end. Um, and so God is powerful, one of our kids wrote. The Lord died on the cross to set me free. Um, and they'd drawn the picture of Jesus on the cross. God loves all. He has always been. God is always good. God can do anything. God is great and powerful. Up above that, God is full of love. God never gives up on you. God is always good. We may have gotten that one twice. God is always with you. And that's the last one. God is good there sideways. So that's what our kids walked away with out of the book of Jonah. Um, and I hope it encourages you to see that's, that's what God's doing. Even as we just sit down with our kids each week, and we're like, what's the Bible teach you about God? Like, this is who they're seeing that God is. Um, and I would say that if we walk away with just those truths, we'd be in a pretty good place too. And along those same lines, two Sundays from now, the plan is that our student pastor, Eric Moreno, is going to preach for us uh, during our Sunday morning service. He's been doing the same thing with our students on Wednesday nights. They've been walking through every miracle story in the New Testament, all the miracles that Jesus does in the Gospels, and then asking the same question, what's that teach us about God? And he's going to pick one of those stories that they've already walked through on a Wednesday night, and he's basically going to preach what the students taught him. So that's how student ministry works here. Our students are teaching our student pastor. But, but seriously, we want to share with you, like these are the truths about God that our students are seeing on Wednesday nights. And, and it'll be the same kind of, you know, we'll walk through it and talk through it, but but he's going to base it on, here's what the students have already seen. These are the truths we saw when we studied together. And we'll spend a week in one of those miracle stories on a Sunday morning coming up. And I just, I think it's good for us to know. Like, these are some things that God is doing that we don't see in here every Sunday morning together. And, and what it's like to really say, we're committed to making disciples this way. We believe this is worthwhile to see God in this way. And so as we were getting started this morning here, we're going to jump into the book of Acts in just a minute. But I wanted to revisit you know, this method that we talked a lot about a few months ago, and I don't mention it as much now, we do it, but I want to give you another way to think about this text method of studying the Bible. We've said that it means talk to God, like we're starting out praying and expressing our dependence on God, encounter God in his word, that we're just going to read the Bible and ask, what does this teach about God? Examine your heart, that we believe that God is doing something deeper than just external or behavior change, but he really wants to work spiritually in our hearts when we encounter him in 
his word, and then we end with talk to God and others, that we would pray again and ask God to do what only he can do in response to his word, and then that he would use us to, to share this with other people and to point other people to him. But I want you to see, and I've said this before, but I'm going to say it right now, like it does not matter at all whether you walk through T-E-X-T in your mind. <laughs> that is not the point. Like we are not wed to or dependent on this method, this model. But I want you to see at the heart of this that this whole thing is about God, that if you never thought about text again, you never thought about T-E-X-T, but that you would come to the Bible with a God-centered view of studying the Bible, looking at the Bible, and a God-centered view of your life, that that's really what we're wanting to walk away with. And so I don't know if I've got room to squeeze it in over here, but I'm going to try to anyway. Let me interpret these four pieces for you. I don't have room, so we'll just make it really, really sloppy, all right? Talk to God. This is dependent on God. That when you come to the Bible and when you come to your life, that you would have this knowledge of, I am dependent on God. I need God. If anything of spiritual significance is going to happen, it's got to be God. And so that, that's why I pray, because of who he is and because of who I am. Right? I'm needy, and I can't make this happen. I don't have this power. I am not sufficient. It is not in me, but it is in him. He is full, and he's good, and he's gracious, and he has everything, and he offers everything, and he gives everything in Jesus. And so I'm dependent on him, that we would come in that way with that knowledge and that heart and that humility of I'm dependent on God. Encounter God in his word is focused on God. Like, I'm not coming as if I'm the center or as if knowledge is the center, if study is the center, if some religious routine is the center. I'm coming like God is the center. Like, I want to meet with God. I want to see God and hear from God and know God. I want God to show me who he is. And that's why we ask that question, what's this teach us about God? That we would deliberately try to strip everything else away and say, if we start anywhere else, we're already missing the whole thing. It has to start with God. All that other stuff, it can be significant for our lives, but only if it grows out of God and out of who he is. And we'll only understand it in the right way if it's connected to God and connected to who he is, because he really is the center. Right? God really is the center of all things. And if you don't come to this like God is the center of all things, you're already off. Right? Like Everything's going to be off. So we have to start there. So we start dependent on God, focused on God. Examine your heart then is being changed by God. And I know you can't read that, but that's what it says, all right? Being changed by God. And the reason I say that is because as soon as we get to heart level, it's out of your control and it's out of my control. Like if we're really going to be serious that this is a heart thing, only God does that. So you'll either be changed by God on a heart level or it won't happen on a heart level. And that is the difference between like a God-centered Christianity and a man-made religion. You can change your behavior. You can make yourself look different on the outside. You can like really truly change your behavior or you can just trick people and pretend. But either way, you can make yourself look different. You can make yourself act different. You can make yourself talk different. But when it comes to changing your heart, like reaching into the depths of your heart, the blackest, most wretched parts that are poisoned by sin, and you pulling that out and purifying that and changing that and making your dead, cold heart come to life and be soft and responsive to God, you can't do that. But God will do it or it won't be done. So if this type of change is going to happen, it has to be changed by God. And then this last talk to God and others is then powered by God, that he's going to empower us to do what he's just called us to do, powered by God to reach others. This change that he's doing in you is supposed to extend beyond you. 
And so, you know, I think this is helpful. The, you know, Michael came up with T-E-X-T when he was here. It's easier to remember. I think the whole thing, talk to God, encounter God in his word, examine your heart, talk to God and others. That's all helpful, both the acronym and what it means. But if you want to do that, like, I can't remember what that stuff stands for, or I just don't like thinking, that's fine. Do that. There's truths behind that. Now, I'm going to say this. Don't do this, right? This side over here. Don't exit out. I'm going to write it clear now. The truths underneath it, the truths that should be driving our whole life, like not just our hour in here, not just your Bible study during the week with other people, but depend on God. Focus on God. Be changed by God. Which that's at the heart level. And then powered by God. To reach others so that we know it doesn't stop with us. That this isn't all just for us and about us. And if you can see that that's the God-centered heart of what we're trying to do in here, who we want to be as a church, what we want to train into our children as disciples of Jesus, what we want to pour into our students as disciples of Jesus, what we want God to pour into all of us, and then what we want him to use us to pour out into the people that he brings into our life and into the world. Like, if that's the heart of it, take or leave everything else, literally everything else. Every program, every plan, every method, every everything that we would depend on God and focus on God and be changed by God and be powered by God to reach people the way that God's called us to, to be his church and his people. And so I just wanted to start there today and just kind of a revisit it all and say this is the heart of what we're praying that God will do. And so today that's what we're going to look at uh, in Acts I know in your notes, we're starting in chapter 8, verse 26, and we're running through the end of chapter 9, and we're going to bring together a couple of stories we've already looked at. Part of this Philip story with the Ethiopian eunuch, Saul, or Paul's conversion, and then some new material with Peter, and I think there's some connections that'll be good for us to see today as we keep moving forward, but before we jump into chapter 8, verse 26, I'm going to start in just a minute with a couple of verses prior to that that aren't in your notes, just to set some context to remind us of where we are. So... Let's pray together, dependent on God, and then we'll read together, focused on God. So will you pray with me right now? Father, thank you for this time right now. Thank you for who you are. That you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving sin, wickedness, and rebellion. Thank you for how many times you tell us that over and over and over in your word. Help us to hear who you are. Open our eyes to really see who you are. And soften our hearts to really and truly believe it and be changed by that our whole lives would be changed by the truth of who you are. I pray that your spirit will do that work during this time right now, that he will teach us from your word as only he can. Please open us up to the truth of your word and open the truth of your word up to us right now for your purposes, for our good. We need you to do this and for your glory in our lives and in your church. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. So backing up to where we always back up to, and just so you know, we'll probably keep backing up here a lot, but Acts 1.8. 
This thing that Jesus says that is like the, the theme verse that sets the entire book of Acts up. This is what's going to happen because Jesus said it right before he goes into heaven. He tells his disciples, the apostles, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And here you see what we just talked about. That if you're going to be powered, it has to be by God. He's going to have to give you his spirit to do these things that I'm getting ready to say. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. And here's the to reach others, right? And the my of Jesus right here, it's about him. It's to make him known. The whole thing's focused on him. They'll receive power from God, God the Spirit, to make God the Son known to other people. Like it's exactly what we're talking about right here. And I hope you see that in Jesus' words. They're going to have to depend on God. The whole focus is going to be on God, making Jesus known, being his witnesses. They're going to be changed by God when the Spirit's in them to reach other people. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. These four places now, four literal places at that time, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. And that was... Jesus is saying, here's what's coming. Here's how it's going to happen. I'll give you my spirit. You'll go and you'll be bold to talk about me and make me known. And it's going to happen in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so then we launch into the book of Acts. And picking up in chapter 8 right here, right after Stephen preaches boldly, filled with the Holy Spirit, in front of the the Jewish Supreme Court, and they get so angry at him for talking about Jesus that they throw rocks at him until he dies, Chapter 8 starts this way. There arose on that day, following the the execution of Stephen, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And so see, here's place one where they've been. In Jerusalem, the starting place that Jesus mentioned. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. There's places two and three that Jesus mentioned. Again, it looks like everything's going wrong for the church in this moment. And yet everything's going right in terms of what Jesus said is going to happen. That persecution, execution, obliterating the church, none of that stops Jesus' plans. None of that undermines Jesus' promises. He's still at work. He's still with his people. He's still bringing about everything that he said was going to happen. So they're all scattered to Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And so see it again right here. This last piece, like they're this powered by God to reach others. But yeah, they're facing persecution. Yes, they've been driven out of their homes. They've been driven out of the city they live in. The one church that existed has been blown up. But because they're dependent on the Spirit and the Spirit lives in them and He's changing their hearts, they have the power to still make Jesus known and be the church wherever they go. And this is exactly how Jesus carries out his own mission. And so one of these people who's scattered by the persecution and has been driven out to Samaria is Philip. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, which is, again, the third location Jesus has talked about, and proclaimed to them the Christ, focused on Jesus again. The whole message is about God. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And I included that little section just for you to see that when they get driven out of Jerusalem and they end up in Judea and Samaria and we see Philip focused on God, empowered by God, making God known, the result is really, really good. 
There's a lot of response here. Like the kind of things that we get excited about today, the numbers you want to see, it's saying like the whole crowd, like all these, the crowds with one accord paid attention to what Philip was saying. They saw the signs he did. They believed like men and women were baptized. In other words, the numbers look good right here. All right? So, and part of it is Jesus is doing what he said. Jesus is doing what he promised. Let's keep that in mind. But as we move into what we're going to focus on today, I just want you to see this is what was going on after they get driven out of Jerusalem. looks really bad. Now there's good stuff happening in Judea and Samaria. So we're going to pick up today in 826. That's our context leading into today. And I'm going to read the rest of chapter 8 and all of chapter 9, if you'll stick with me, and be listening for what's this teach us about God. And I know there's a hundred directions you can go, and that's great. Whatever you feel the Spirit prompting you to focus on, I want you to share that with us in a few minutes. And then I do have a few thoughts that we'll circle back to at the end that uh, I've really felt this week that uh, are things I'm supposed to share with you. And so I'm looking forward to that too. But 826, starting here and going through the end of chapter 9. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. So in his humiliation, in his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem." Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, 
how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And where's my chapter 9? Uh-oh. <laughs> I may have to go back here and find it. Where'd you go? Do I have notes up here? Here. It's not going to be on the screen. I don't know where it went. Sorry about that. How many times have I stood up here and told you we don't try to get everything right and it's okay when we don't? All right, verse 32. It's, not, it's the end of chapter 9 here, verse 32. You all with me in your notes? Not going to be on the screen. All right. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. All right, that's where I meant for us to get to today. Sorry that I deleted it off there somehow. But three stories, and I know it's three, Philip, Paul, 
Peter, but I think there's some connections, and I also obviously think there's truths about God for us to see in all three of them. So what stands out to you? You go first. Who is God, how he works, what he does, his nature, his character, and it can be God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. What jumped out to you this morning as we were reading that together and, and hopefully listening to what God was saying about himself? God is at work everywhere, all the time. You're just jumping way ahead of me. Um, you know, it's awesome because I don't have to do this at the end now. What, one of the biggest things that stood out to me, and the reason I wanted to connect all three of those, and the way that I had said it was God often does more than one thing at a time, or also God's always working way beyond you. And I just want you to think that he's got Philip out here in the desert, right? And nobody else knows that he's, this Ethiopian eunuch is out there. And if we go all the way back up here to the beginning, Acts 1.8, you know, we've, got, we've checked off Jerusalem, right? That was where we started. We've checked off Judea. We've checked off Samaria. But we hadn't gotten to the ends of the earth yet. Well, the Ethiopian eunuch on his way back to Ethiopia, guess where that fits in this? Right? Ends of the earth. Like something beyond Judea and Samaria. And so here God like supernaturally transports Philip out here into the desert in a place where you don't expect to reach anybody. And this is God, he's at work in ways that you can't imagine. Like while he's doing this great thing in Samaria, he's also doing this thing out in the desert to start, to, like to jumpstart the ends of the earth. And then he shows up, here's Saul traveling to Damascus to arrest Christians and throw them in prison. And Jesus appears to him and says, and you're going to go to the ends of the earth. Kings and Gentiles are going to hear my gospel because I've chosen you to make it known. And so while Philip is doing this thing out here that nobody knows anything about, here's Jesus showing up to Paul in a way that nobody else knows about. Do you, do you see that? And then also, everybody's been driven out of Jerusalem by the persecution except the apostles. And now we get to the end of chapter 9 and we find out, guess what? God didn't abandon Jerusalem and Judea either. Because here's Peter back in Joppa and Lydda are both in Israel. Like they're, they're, you know, they're sitting, so we're back now inside the original place, and he's using Peter, one of the original apostles, to still make Jesus known. And God's doing all of it. And one of the biggest reasons why that I, that I ask you and I test like your all's attention span and I ask you to stick with me for so many verses is because we read a story about Philip, and we read a story about Paul, and we read a story about Peter. And we're really tempted to think, well, those are three different stories because it's Philip and Paul and Peter, and it's not. Do you see we read one thing about God this morning? In Philip's story, God's still there. In Paul's story, God's still there. In Peter's story, God's still there. It's not a story about Philip. It's not a story about Paul. It's not a story about Peter. It's a story about God, and for part of it, Philip's in there, and for part of it, Paul's in there, and for part of it, Peter's in there, and none of them are always there. None of them are the main character. None of them are there start to finish, but God is. And so here's what's going on. In the story of your life, God's in there. Like, he is working in your life. This truth works both ways. Like, don't get discouraged when you feel like you're not seeing enough going on because he's at work in other ways that you don't see, that you don't know about, that are far beyond you. He didn't tell Paul about Philip being out in the desert with the Ethiopian eunuch. And he didn't tell Philip, hey, here's what I'm going to do with Paul. And neither one of them know what's happening behind a closed door in some room secretively when Peter's like, this doesn't have to be, you don't have to let anybody else know. Kick everybody out before I bring her back to life. 
Like it wasn't about attention for any of them or anybody else knowing what's going on. It was all of them just trusting Jesus and following him wherever he led. And he was doing things in all their lives. And he's always the one who's there. And he's always constant. And so there's times in our life we get discouraged. Like, I don't know what you're doing. I don't see it. That's okay. He's got somebody out in the desert right now. And he's about to go to Ethiopia. And he's about to change somebody else's life on the road to Damascus. He's got somebody back here in Judea. Everybody's been driven out except for the apostles, but he's still using the apostles. And the gospel's still spreading there. People are still believing there. And you may not know all the things he's doing, but I promise you, he's at work everywhere all the time. So it works that way, but then it also works this way. He is at work in your life. Like you're part of the everywhere all the time. He hasn't forgotten you. When the moment comes when he says something, be sensitive. Hear him. (laughs) Be in tune to, I'm part of this everywhere all the time, and you're working in my life. And every one of these things are unexpected. Like It's unexpected that Philip will end up where he ends up and run into an Ethiopian eunuch in such a significant position that he's going to be placed in the, the palace to take the gospel back with him. It's really, really surprising that Saul would get converted this way. Nobody sees that coming. It's super surprising if you think about Peter's history. He denied Jesus three times the night before Jesus was crucified. And now the church in Jerusalem has been blown up and the apostles, they have nothing to show numerically for the first year of ministry they've had in Jerusalem. Right? Jesus uses them to start their church and their church dies in the middle of persecution. And yet that's who God is using. He's using Peter right now to spread the gospel to new regions of Israel, to continue to build the church in new cities, to perform miracles that only Jesus could do. Like All of this is God's work in his people separately at the same time. And I just want to encourage you to trust that that's what he's doing. Yes, in all, of, like all sorts of other places, in other people's lives, things we don't know about, and then also in your life. God is at work everywhere all the time, beyond us, in ways we can't expect, in ways we can't imagine, and also through you, that you are one, the whole story's his, and you're one part of his story. Like Philip was a part. Like just because God's working through Peter and Paul in ways Philip doesn't know, doesn't mean that Philip's not a part of God's story. He is. It just means it's God's story, and Philip gets to be a part of it. And you're part of it. Like he has called you to himself. He has given you his spirit. He's united you to his body and his church. He's made you part of his people. If you're believing in Jesus, and this is what he does in his people and in his church. All right. You all only said one thing. Go again. What else? What's this teach us about God? Yes. God uses his word as a catalyst to change lives. You know, there's a sense every week when we talk through this, and I say, only God can do this. And I really, really mean that. And and what we mean is that if we try to do this in our own strength or somehow dependent on our abilities, separate from God, it cannot happen. Right? Like, it's important for us to get that. When Jesus says that he's the vine and we're the branches... And apart from him, we can do nothing. He means nothing of spiritual significance, nothing with lasting spiritual power, nothing that will actually change things spiritually for all eternity. He's the only one that does that. He provides spiritual life, and we have to be connected to him. If we are apart from him, separated from him, we're separated from the source of spiritual life. So we can't do it on our own. 
But at the very same time, I don't want you to think that that means there's nothing for us to do in another sense. That we just say, okay, well, God's got to do it. There's nothing for me to do. God's got to do it. Only God can do it. And God has also made it really, really clear how he does it. He takes his people and he fills them with his spirit and then empowers them and gives them boldness to speak his word. And he says, and that's where I'll come. Like He's still the one doing that, but he is doing it through you, faithfully speaking about Jesus. Like every one of these, you know, Philip ends up in the desert, and he's like, okay, yeah, let's start in Isaiah, and I'll tell you about Jesus. Saul gets converted, and he runs straight back into the synagogues, and he's like, Jesus is the Son of God. You know, Peter shows up, and he's like, in the name of Jesus Christ, you'll be healed. Like there's this clear, for them, it's very, very clear. It's always going to be about Jesus. It's going to be, the, and whatever setting we are in, we're going to speak about Jesus. And so God does it, and this is how he does it. When we are filled with his spirit and we declare his word boldly, centered on Jesus, focused on God, this is how he does it. And it doesn't mean that, like, that there's this formula where we're like, okay, check, check, check. I did what I was supposed to. Now, God, do your thing. Like, we don't summon him that way. We don't control him. There is mystery here. And why is it that, that you, you speak the gospel in the name of Jesus to somebody and God opens their eyes and they get it? And somebody else hears it for 20 years and says, no, 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 no. And then one day God opens their eyes and other people, there's just kind of this gradual melting of their heart. I don't know all that. I, like, I can't unravel all the mystery for you, but I'll tell you this. That is how he does it. It's through his people being filled with his spirit, speaking his word, making Jesus known. And I can also tell you, I think one of the reasons why it looks different is because he's making it really, really clear to us, you don't do it. <laughs> like You don't just go and say, hey, I did that. Okay, now do your job. We say, no, I trust you. You say this is how you do it. And so I'm going to keep trusting you. When I don't see it, I'm going to trust you. When I do see it, I'm going to trust you. When it happens, I'm not going to start thinking I did it. I'm going to know that you did it. And I know how you do it. And so when I'm not seeing it, I'm going to do this all the more because I know it's the only way you're going to do it. Like you do it and you've told us how, so let's do what you say. Does that make sense a little bit? God uses his word as a catalyst to change lives. As we walk through this whole book, you're going to see the people praying over and over and over. And I really haven't like, done a, we'll do a week pro where we do a summer where we just, they're praying and they're speaking the word. They're praying and they're speaking the word. And really they're praying and then they're filled with the spirit and they're speaking the word. And this is how God builds his church. This is how God works in his people. So God uses his word as a catalyst to change lives. What else? God places us where he needs us to be even when we don't realize it. And then the application that was added there at the end was, so we need to be ready. And, and by ready, what we really mean is dependent. That does say dependent on him and sensitive his spirit. Like, I want to go back, and this is the reason why I started here in chapter 8, like when I included this little initial bit about Philip's preaching in Samaria and like these huge crowds are responding and believing and getting baptized. I want you to think, just for a minute, in terms of like contemporary modern day church. 
You've got a huge crowd coming to hear you. You've got a huge number of people responding. What do we do if that happens today? Just throw out your thought. It doesn't matter. I mean, there's no like technical biblical answer. Like, what, what do we use? How do we respond to that? We get really excited, keep doing what we're doing. What we try, how do we capitalize on this momentum, right? Like, oh my word, everybody can't fit. Let's start another service. Now we, well, we, we have five services. We can't do that. Let's build a bigger building. And then if it keeps going, like, and, and whatever we're doing right, like, let's bottle that up. And then if we get really, really good at it, and by the way, some of this stuff could be okay sometimes, but just a lot of times I'm not sure that it is. If we get really, really good at it, let's write a book about what we did so other people can copy what we did, and let's start holding conferences and get everybody else to do it. Like, it's, we've, we've tasted a little bit of success, and we really like it, and this is what it was all about anyway, so let's keep focused and do everything we can to hold on to that. Right? I mean, don't, isn't that what we usually do, just honestly? So Philip's right in the middle of all of success. And what does God say? An angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Hey, Philip, leave the crowd and the popularity and the success and go out to the desert. How many of us think that makes sense? How many of us would do it that way? How many of us would be willing to walk away from this type of success? and the affirmation that comes from it, and the sense of worth and validation and, and the excitement. Are you, not right now. Surely Jesus said Samaria, and it's going well in Samaria. <laughs> Sensitive to the Spirit, trusting Him, knowing that God knows better than you do where He wants you right now. And then, of course, what's going on here is you get out there, You've left these crowds, all these people responding, and there's one person. <laughs> I ask you to walk away from, from the whole city <laughs> for this one person. It still doesn't make much sense. And then the Spirit prompts you to walk up to the chariot, and you hear him reading Isaiah. And maybe at that point you're like, oh, God's doing something right here. He's reading about Jesus, and he doesn't even know that he's reading about Jesus. Now, does, does it ever click to Philip that, hey, this is the ends of the earth happening right now for the very first time? Like, here we are, God's finally getting us outside of Judea and Samaria, and this thing's going to Ethiopia now. Like, he, the Ethiopian eunuch gets Jesus from Philip right here in the middle of the desert, and then he heads back to Ethiopia with Jesus now. And he knows that Isaiah is about Jesus, and he knows the whole thing's about Jesus. And we don't even get the rest of that story in the Bible. God doesn't even bother telling us. And it's like he's saying, you don't need to know how it ends. You just go where I tell you to go and do what I tell you to do and follow me wherever it is. And if it looks like the desert, so what? <laughs> go to the desert and talk about Jesus. Walk away from the crowds and talk about Jesus. Walk away from success and talk about Jesus. God places us where he needs us to be even when we don't realize it, when it makes no sense to us. And so be ready and be dependent on him and, and, and not trusting what's going well or what looks good or what feels like success. Like don't, your highs and lows aren't tied to that. Is this where God has you? Is this what God's calling you to? Has he placed you here? Has he led you here? Is he pulling you somewhere else? Is he planting you here? Like you follow Jesus and you let Jesus take care of the results. What else do you see? Two more. Either truths about God or if you want to talk about what God's saying to your heart. Truths about us. Two more if you've got them. It don't have to be two more. But just don't want to cut you off too soon. 
to, to, to tell others? Yeah, I mean, like, when we say talk to God and to others, that whatever God's teaching you, you're telling other people. If you want to do this this week, like, it can be kind of a fun little challenge for us. It's 28 chapters in Acts. That's four chapters a day. Right? You could read it in a week if you read four chapters a day. If you want to read the whole book of Acts, and if you can find a single example where God fills somebody with his spirit, like pours into them and shows them who he is and who Jesus is in the gospel, that they don't then pour that out to other people, come show me. All right? And we'll look at it next week and be like, what's going on there? Why is this so weird? <laughs> God, I'd love to look. Like, it'd be great because it's true. Like, it's just, and it, it's so natural that we don't even think about it when we read it. But as soon as Saul learns who Jesus is, what's he start doing? Telling other people who Jesus is, so much so they try to kill him. <laughs> That's how fast it happens for him. With, with Philip, he, he's in Samaria. What's he doing? Telling people who Jesus is. He gets jerked out of Samaria and thrown out in the desert. What's he do? Tell somebody who Jesus is. Peter goes to a funeral. Like the woman's dead and everybody's crying and he's talking about Jesus. Like this, it's all about Jesus. And listen, that's not being insensitive to what they're going through. This is the answer. This is what everybody needs to hear. Like Jesus is always the answer, always. In the most compassionate, heartfelt, sensitive, loving, gracious way that you can ever interact with anybody if you can help them see that Jesus is the answer and that their biggest problem isn't whatever problem they're facing, their biggest problem is that they don't see yet that Jesus is the answer. And you don't have to dismiss anything. Like the stuff they're going through is exactly what God will use to bring them to Jesus. You don't dismiss it. You sit down with them right in the middle of it. And you're like, yeah, I'm here with you, and I want you to know Jesus is the answer. I'm not the answer. I can't fix this for you. Jesus is the answer. If this never gets fixed in your whole life, Jesus is the answer. So yeah, like all of them, always talking to others and not in a forced, guilt-ridden, like I'm not trying to beat you over the head and tell you you have to do this. I'm telling you that what I hope is that the Spirit fills you up in such a way and that your heart is melted by the love and grace of God in such a way that this is just what you talk about. I haven't really talked about sports much since I've been in this role with you, but I do like sports. I grew up in Kentucky, so I'm a basketball fan primarily. Um, but Kentucky's 6-0 and this year in football. And if you want to know how rare that is, you know, neither of my girls have ever seen that happen. Christy and I have never seen that happen. We're 40, and it's never happened in our life. I finally looked it up last night. Our parents have never seen that happen. The last time that Kentucky was 6-0 and in football was 1950. 1950! <laughs> And I've, been, I've gotten texts from guys that, like, we were friends in high school, and they live in Florida now, and they're texting me, can you believe this? Can you believe you know, Christy and I were talking about it last night. And just, there's all these conversations happening about, I can't believe Kentucky's 6-0. Nobody's making us talk about that. It's exciting. It's mind-boggling. Like, it's, it's nearly unbelievable. And so we just talk about it. If you ever realize how much God loves you in the gospel... And what Jesus has done for you and the power that he offers when he, the God of the universe, comes to live inside of you, to dwell in you, and to use you to make him known. Like if, if he opens your eyes to see that and melts your heart, it's mind-boggling. Like it's nearly unbelievable. I said, well, yeah, we'll talk about this. This is, this is great to talk about. This is the best thing I could ever tell somebody. And so there's not a guilt trip this morning. Like if you feel guilty... If you just keep thinking, 
I don't do that. Like, I'm still, I'm fearful. I have doubts. I have anxiety. I'm timid. I fear rejection. It just feels awkward. I don't, I still don't think God would ever use me. I'm not gifted enough. I'm not this and that enough. I know we've talked over and over and over about, hey, that's exactly why God will use you, but that's not where I'm going right now. All the things you feel, so you sit here and you think, here's all the reasons I don't do it, and I feel guilty because I know every week we're talking about how this, what this should look like and, and how God should be using me to know him more in his word and to help other people know him more and that he's bringing people into my life, and I'm still not doing it. Here's what I would say to you today, a different tact. Stop worrying about it. Don't do it. God won't love you any less. You're not earning his approval by telling people about Jesus. Jesus earned his approval when he died for you on the cross. This is not a hoop you have to jump through. This is not a box you have to check. This is not a religious duty that you have to perform so that God will love you and like you and approve of you and smile at you. And maybe when you realize you don't have to do it, then you'll just have to do it. You don't have to. You know why else you don't have to? Because the kingdom of God doesn't rise and fall on you and me or on Friendship Community Church. God's at work beyond us in ways we don't even know. Don't think for a minute if, if we don't that he won't. But also, it's Philip and Paul and Peter and you and me. He said, hey, come be a part of my story. I've got a place for you to go tell an Ethiopian eunuch about Jesus. I've got a place for you to stand up in the synagogue and say, Jesus is the son of God until they want to kill you. I've got a good place for you to go to people who are grieving and say, Jesus is the answer and let me show you how. I don't want you to miss that. I don't want us to miss that. But you also won't ever see it as long as you feel like you've got to do it out of some religious sense of guilt. Like, do it because he loves you. Do it because of who he is. Don't do it so that he'll love you. It doesn't work that way. And so just live in the freedom that this is done. He's made the promises and he's working it out. And now you can get swept up just in the current and the tidal wave of what he's doing and let him carry you. See what happens. But be sensitive where he has you. And know he's putting you there for other people. He loves other people the way he loves you. He wants to reach other people the way that he's reached you. What else? One more if you've got it. God can speak to us in visions. And let's just kind of add here, and any way he wants. <laughs> and we said when we're in tune with him, and that's true. Like this is the piece of, of be sensitive to the spirit. That you know, if you're if you're spending time in the Word and in prayer, you are tuned in to hear what's God saying. But I also I was just thinking about Saul right here. And even when we're not. <laughs> this thing doesn't depend on you. Jesus decides, hey, it's time to get Saul's attention. Here Jesus comes in a vision for Saul. And Saul's not ready to listen at all. But you know who wins there? <laughs> Jesus gets Saul's attention and Jesus wins. Saul's not looking for Jesus at all, but Jesus is looking for Saul. But yeah, that 
that God does have things. That God, as much as we're saying, it's beyond us and bigger than us, and that's good. It should be humbling for us that, it's not, that it doesn't all just depend on us and it's not all about us. It should also be really, really encouraging and freeing. Like that burden is not on you. Like God did not set his kingdom on your shoulders and say, make this happen. He said, I'm making it happen way bigger than you. You can be a part. Come be a part of it. You're always just going to be a part of it, but come be a part of it. And so it's not on, but when you, when you realize that, just the same way that he's doing that all those places, when we say he's doing it with you, like he's personally, a personal God, individually, personally involved in your life. Like speaking to you. He has places for you to be, to make Jesus known. He has these encounters with, with him that, he, that he's designed where he's going to say, yeah, I'm calling you away from the crowd in Samaria and from the thing that everybody thinks they would want. Come out into the desert and then you're going to know me more. You, you'll, see, you'll see just how wise I am. You'll see the way that I work in a way that you never would have seen it in that crowd. And like he has these personal invitations for you of saying, will you come and... Find me here and know me here and see what I'm doing. Let me show you. Let me show you what I've got individually planned for your life. It is true. Like, he does speak to us in that way. A couple of things I was going to say. I was thinking about starting again with, this is the mission that Jesus gives for his church till the end of the age, right? Holy Spirit on you, power in you from me, so you'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. That's the mission. And so I was thinking about both when he calls Philip to leave Samaria, and I know we've already talked about it a lot, but then also when he transforms Saul, this really self-righteous religious guy who thinks he's doing the right thing for God. Like he thinks he is defending God by murdering Christians. And he's using Philip, and he's using Saul right now in, in this part of the story as the main two ways that we're moving to the ends of the earth. Philip reaches the Ethiopian eunuch, and he tells Saul, you're, you're going to be my instrument to go to the Gentiles. And so this is God calling both of them to be part of this mission that Jesus has given, for Jesus to accomplish the mission. But what I was thinking was, what are all the things that, were in the, that could have been in the way for Philip and for Paul? What were all the things they had to die to, the things that God had to kill in them? Because one of the things that stood out to me and I know we've talked a lot about how God uses people you don't expect and the nothings and the nobodies and the rejects and the outcasts instead of the people that the world embraces, is that with every one of these stories, there's some sense of a weakening before God uses them. Like not, not a strengthening. It's not, let's go find the strong. God's not saying, let's go find the strongest and the best and the most apt and the most qualified and the one who can do this the best and I'll make him even stronger. Than like with, with Philip, it's walk away, and we've talked about it, from the whole crowd, from all the success, all the response, out into a deserted place, into the desert where there's only one person. Like, when I'm going to use you the most for the ends of the earth, it's going to look like I'm weakening. I'm calling you away from success into what we would call failure. Right? A ministry of one, like, we don't celebrate that. We get really panicky if, if things aren't growing as fast as we think they should. And so there's a weakening, in a sense, of Philip's fame and success. With Saul, it's really, really clear. It's like, hey, I'm going to have to make you blind because you think you can see. You think you know me. You think you're following me. You think you're doing what I want you to do. And in all of your religious knowledge and expertise and self-righteousness, you can't see me at all. So here, what if I make you so weak that you literally can't see? 
And you can't do anything for yourself, and they have to lead you by the hand. Finally then, when I break you in that way, will you be ready for me to use you? He didn't need a strong Saul. He needed a weak Paul. And then with, with Peter, I, I, just, I love that little detail where it's not Peter saying, hey, like, I, know, I know what Jesus has given me now. I can heal people. I can raise the dead. Bring in the whole city and let them watch this. Because that's how, like, if they see this event, let's plan, let's plan a night and let's advertise it for a long time. And when they all come, I'm going to raise her from the dead and the event will convince them. That's not what Peter, he throws everybody else out of the room. Just look at it in your worship guide right here at the end. Verse 40, like all the people been around him telling him how great Tabitha was and all the great things she had done. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. Do you see the dependence on God? This is not Peter's show. The dependence on God that God has to do this and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Peter doesn't do it the way that we would do it today. And yet that's what God uses. Even there, there's a, a, Peter dies to the idea of, I'm going to make an event out of this. There's a weakening of Peter. Like, do this in secret. Just between you and this is God's work. It's not Peter's work. And then God uses that and blesses it and makes it known. It's just the idea of, of the weakening over and over and over. And so I was just going through this list, and you may want to add some here in a minute, but when God's calling you to his mission, he's saying, I want you, I'm going to use you. With Saul, I was thinking, we've got to die to self-righteousness. When you think you can see and when you think you know what needs to be done, basically when you think that you've got all the answers that only God answers, God's not going to use you there. When you know you're blind, God will help you see. When you know you don't have the answers, God will start to show them to you. When you know that you can't do anything for him, he will use you. He will give you what you need. And so he, he's, he crucifies Saul's self-righteousness. And now Saul's ready to be part of this mission to the ends of the earth. With Philip, I thought about success. Like success is such a sneaky idol in our lives, and especially in the church. Like if we taste the least little bit of what looks like spiritual success, or even just what looks like numerical or worldly success, we'll, we grab hold of it. We've got to keep doing this. And we've got to keep whatever's happening. We've got to keep making this happen. And so quickly, success becomes the goal instead of Jesus being the goal. Like Jesus is the goal. And that's why Philip gets to be part of his mission. He's like, okay, Jesus persecution came, and I know you're sovereign over it, and it drove me out of Jerusalem to Samaria. So while I'm in Samaria, I'm going to talk about you. And this is going really well, and everybody's responding, but now you're telling me to go out in the desert. Well, guess what? It wasn't about success in Samaria. The only reason I was here was because I was following you. If you're going out to the desert, I'm going with you. You're the goal. And so we have to die to success and be willing to give up every appearance and everybody's affirmation and approval of what that would look like and just say, wherever Jesus leads me, following him, that's success. Being with Jesus, that is the goal. And, and you, know, you could tie all the stuff that comes with like prestige, approval, validation. I know we could sit down on how big of idols these can be in our hearts in all these different ways. Acceptance. And I was thinking about Paul again. And you know, when he, 
he's a Pharisee. He's a very religious guy. And we said he thinks that he's doing what God wants him to do. Like He says, I was so zealous for the traditions of my father, so zealous for the law, God's law, so zealous for the Old Testament that I was persecuting the church. And so you see Paul here with his own agenda and your pet projects. Like Paul makes it his mission. I'm going to destroy the church. Anybody who follows Jesus, I'm going to go hunt them down and throw them in prison. And he's so driven by what he wants to do for God, his plan, his agenda, his pet project, that he's totally oblivious to what God's actually doing in the world and what God wants to do through him. But do you, like His pet projects, his agenda had to die, and he thought that it was right. And he thought that it was good. He thought that it was religious and holy. Like He would have argued that, that, that these, new, these Christians don't believe in the God of our fathers. He was, completely, he was so blind in all of his religious knowledge that the very thing he was defending as the most religious and holy thing he could do was completely opposed to God. But do you see how his agenda and his pet projects had to die for him to be part of Jesus' mission? Jesus had to say, that, that, I have to crucify that. And now here, let me give you a whole new mission. Let me give you my mission. Ends of the earth with the gospel. Self-effort. Self-sufficiency. I mean, I know you see it with Paul, how he's always achieved that way, but I was also thinking about Peter. Like when Peter shows up in Joppa, it's not, I'm going to do this, or I can do this, or I've got the answers for you. Get out and let me pray. Because God can do this. We need God's power. We need God's answer. God's sufficient for this situation. I know she's dead, but God's sufficient. There's been a humbling in Peter from all those failures and the restoration to now that is beautiful to see in this section as the Spirit lives in him and the grace of God is softening his heart. And it's no longer the the headstrong, arrogant guy who's looking at Jesus saying, everybody else may deny you, but I'll die for you. <laughs> you know, it's like six hours later that he's denying him. Like that, that was Peter before, before God broke him and made him weaker. And said, now you're broken enough, now you're weak enough, I'll use you. This is Peter after. I don't have the answers, I can't do this, but God can. Get out, I'm not performing for you. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask God to do what only God can do. And I was going through this list, and I was just, as you examine your own heart today, what are the things in your life that you've got to lay down at God's feet? And just say, these are the things I've wanted. Like, these are the things that have, in my religious life, these are the things that have driven me. The things that I've wanted, the things that I have sought. When I, when I have done good things that look really good and produce really good results, here's what my heart's really wanted more than you. And I want to die to those things. I want to die to those things because they get in the way of your mission. And I want it to be you and your spirit and your work making your son known. And so create that kind of heart in me. Create a pure heart in me that desires you alone. And then the very last thing that stood out to me today, it's just an application. And I really just felt over and over that I'm supposed to say this this morning. And so I don't, know, I don't know who it's for. I just know that this is good. It, maybe it's just for me. But it is exhausting trying to be God 
when you're not God. And what I mean is, none of us have the mental capacity or the spiritual power to pull off what God pulled off with Philip in Samaria and then Philip in the desert and Saul on the road to Damascus and Peter back in Israel, especially not at the same time. Can any of you do that? Can any of you tell me right now at this moment what God is doing in any other church just up and down this road this morning? Do you know how limited we really are in our knowledge of what's going on spiritually and in our power to do anything about it? And do you know how many of us live our life like that's our job? I've got to control everything. I've got to fix everything. I've got to make everything happen. Whatever's happened in my life is all that's happening in the whole kingdom of God, and so we've got to get this right. And you put this burden on you and this weight on you and you wear yourself out. And sometimes it's not even, maybe a lot of times it's not even about Jesus and his gospel. It's just about the details of your life and everybody else around you. I've got to make sure this goes right and this goes right. I've got to tell them what to do. And we've got to fix that. And I've got to get this back under control. And they're about to get out of line. I've got to reel that back in. And, just, and we're just, you're not God. And it is exhausting for you to try to live like you're God when you're not God. It's not exhausting for God because he's God. He sees all that. He knows all that. He has the power to do something about all of that. He is everywhere all the time. He is working, and it doesn't even make him tired. He has infinite power. It never runs out. Infinite wisdom, like never baffled. Sovereign control, authority over all things. It's easy for him, and it's impossible for you, and it's exhausting, and so... Just part of it this morning is I would love for you just to be able to lay it all down and open up your hands and just say, I'm going to trust God to be God. And so whatever he's doing in my life, that's where I want to be. And I'm going to trust him with that. And then when he's doing stuff outside my life, I'm going to celebrate that. When news comes back from the desert and Philip tells me what God's been doing, I'm going to be excited about that. And when people start telling me, hey, you remember that guy that was so opposed to Jesus? His life's been changed by Jesus. I'm going to celebrate that. And when Peter opens the door and says, hey, she's alive, I'm going to celebrate that. And I'm going to know that it's God in all these places. It's going to be a reminder for me that he's got this covered and he's doing things that I didn't even know were a problem. He's fixing them. And so it really is exhausting for you to try to be God when you're not God. And so just stop. Know who he is. He's so good and he's so gracious and he loves you so much. And he can handle everything in your life because he can handle everything in the whole world all at once. And he's working it for his purposes, for, for your good, for his glory. It's okay that you're not God. He didn't make you to be him. He's already got that covered. He doesn't need you to be him. That's not your purpose. And relax in that and breathe in that and feel the freedom of that and the joy and the peace that comes from trusting the one who's got the whole thing under control. Who's doing more than you could ever dream. And if you sit here, we're getting ready to worship in just a minute and to thank God for who he is and to praise him. But if you sit here when I say that and you're like, yeah, that's all well and good. That sounds great. But I just don't know. I can look at my life and I don't know. Can I really trust God with this? Is God really doing something with this? Is it really working out? 
here would be my encouragement to you. Stop looking at your life right now, at this moment. You're not the sinner, and it's not about you. Stop looking at your life, and I want you to look back to the cross. And I want you to remember what God has already said once and all, for all eternity, about how he loves you, about how, what he can do with awful, terrible, dark things, about the good that he can bring out of it, about everything that he promises you in Jesus and about how fully committed Jesus was to go to the very, very end for your sake. Like when he calls you, when Jesus calls you to go to the ends of the earth with his gospel, he's not calling you to do something that he hasn't already done a million times over. Jesus did not just go to the ends of the earth for you. Jesus went to the end of his life for you. Jesus went to the depths of the spiritual realms for you. He went to the wrath and punishment and judgment of God. He went to the end of it all, and he could say, it is finished. He's done the whole thing. He's gone the whole way for you. And as he brings you along now in this journey with him on his mission, you can trust him. Because he's already been there. He's gone before you, and now he's here with you, and he's living inside you. And so see him that way this morning. Trust him that way. And let's worship together. Let's thank him for that. So we're going to pray right now as our worship team comes. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that this is your mission. And your vision is not ours. We don't have to come up with it. We don't have to figure out what it should be. And we don't have to figure out how to do it. That you've told us what you are doing. You are making Jesus known and building your church and drawing people to yourself and showing your grace and your compassion and your mercy. And you're doing it by filling us with your spirit and giving us power and boldness to declare your word and make Jesus known. Father, help us to see this morning how clearly you have said what you're doing how clear, clearly you have told us how you're going to do it. Help us to trust you and believe you. And then help us most of all to see that you're doing it because of Jesus, that all of our hope is in him. Stir that up in our hearts today. Change us from the inside out. Build your church for your purposes in your world. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.